This podcast covers true crime cases that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, this is Kendra. And this is April. And you're listening to our podcast, Nocturnal Distractions. We're just two best friends who decided to uh, start a podcast. And well, correction, Kendra decided to start this and to she convinced me to come along for the journey. Yeah, uh, that did happen. I kind of tricked her into coming along. I'm a true crime junkie and April is um not so much. Not so much, but I'm getting better at it. Yeah, she is. And so together we are covering true crime and we are covering missing persons and mystery and paranormal and all that fun stuff from way back from the 1500s because that's what she likes to do up until current day stuff which is what i like to do so please come join us in our completely unscripted um hilarious journey of me learning about crime shit and everything that causes you guys to have nocturnal distractions at night hey everybody welcome to malice and mocktails a true crime podcast I'm your host, Katie. And I'm your occasional co-host, Emily. <laughs> and um, the trailer you heard uh, before we started is from Nocturnal Distractions, hosted by Kendra and April. And they are two BFFs who cover true crime, paranormal, missing persons, etc. They're hilarious, and their episodes are typically unscripted, which I personally like. It takes quite a bit of time, at least in my experience, to really script out each episode. And I generally make notes and do like some sort of scripting to some extent. Personally, it just helps me avoid saying um all the time, even though I still say it. So either way, I highly recommend them. And please, please go check them out. Emily, once again, I have a case for you that involves two stupid boys on the cusp of manhood making poor choices such as committing larceny kidnapping and homicide oh hooray the big three yes a brief uh, snapshot as it were uh, two university students from very wealthy and privileged backgrounds kidnap and trigger warning murder a 14 year old boy Basically, for the thrill of it. Because what else are you going to do on a Friday night? Uh, I guess so. So before I dive into the specifics of the case itself, I do want to share some background into the victim, Bobby Franks, and the two entitled idiots who committed this ridiculous, horrible crime. Um, Oh, I forgot. This is episode nine. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know. Can't believe we're almost to 10 episodes. That's super exciting. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to have to get like some kind of noisemaker clapper or something for episode <laughs> 10. Yes, because I don't have anything fancy. Like, I don't have a lot, I don't have an applause track or anything like that. Today, I'm taking us to Chicago, specifically in the 1920s. And the population at that time was about 2.7 million. And Chicago is a, bu- a bustling metropolis at this point, complete with 
bootleggers, speakeasies, gangsters, and that sort of thing. Dang. Yes. Um, however, our story, I, sh- I, I shouldn't say our story, this, this case is um, going to take place in a very, very upscale neighborhood. And stand by, I thought I had it in my notes. It might be later on. Um, so let me, let me tell you a little bit about Bobby. So his name is uh, Robert Emmanuel Franks. And he was born September 19, 1909, to Jacob and Flora Franks. And according to various sources, um, he was nicknamed Bobby, and a lot of the newspapers referred to him as such. And um, I'm guessing his family also called him that. So that is how I will refer to him moving forward. Okay. So Jacob Franks, uh, Bobby's father, was a wealthy merchant and made his fortune around 1876 from starting a, in the loan business. And in 1901, he became president of the Rockford Watch Company and was a life member of the Arts Institute. And the family lived in a beautiful home located, um, I believe it's in the, in the Kenwood neighborhood. And it's a uh, south side of Chicago, I believe. And um, Jacob Franks, um, at the time of his death, leaves a fund of about $100,000 to, quote, give pleasure, help, and encouragement to boys as a memorial to his son, Bobby. And it was reported that he died of a broken heart. And I'm not crying, you're crying. Like, that <laughs> just made me really sad when I read that in the newspaper. So, so that so he, he left that in memoriam for Bobby because Bobby was kidnapped and murdered? Um, I believe so, yes. So it was meant as a way to help. Um, uh, I don't know if it was necessarily like wayward boys, but I think it's just in general, like young, young children, young men, young, oh, young boys at that time. Sucks. Yeah. And $100,000 back in the 1920s, that a, that's nothing to sniff at. No, that was a good amount of money. That's quite a chunk. Holy crap. So moving right along, let me talk about these fools that commit this crime. So uh, Nathan Freudenthal Leopold, and I'm going to refer to him. You're probably going to just refer to these two guys by their last names. Yeah, because that's a mouthful. Yes. Well, I could refer to him as Nathan, but in most newspapers and other like scholarly sort of journals like they'll they'll it's like you say leopold and Loeb, and most um criminal psychologists true crime junkies like that's they they know the case by their last names okay typically so nathan leopold was born on november 19th 1904 in chicago to florence and nathan leopold senior and they were a wealthy german jewish family and Leopold was somewhat of a child prodigy, um, from what I've read. And it was alleged that he spoke his first words when he was only four months old. Holy crap. Yeah. And at the time of the murder, he completed, he had already completed an undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago with uh, 
Phi Beta Kappa honors and planned to begin studying at Harvard Law um, after a trip to Europe. Now, this trip to Europe was planned for June of 1924. And I found his passport application on Ancestry and was naturally suspicious because in my mind, I was like, okay, like, whole thing is clearly premeditated and he's planning to skip town to avoid being caught but Ah. bobby was killed on on may 21st and the european trip was planned for june 11th of that year um which is actually uh richard Loeb, who's the other perpetrator's birthday i don't know what to make of that um if anything it could be a total coincidence I don't um, know. I mean, I would think that if I wanted to try to get away with murder, I would want to skip town before I became a sub- suspect. So maybe. I would want to skip town, like murder the 21st and be out of town by the 22nd. Yeah. Well, we'll get into a little bit of, uh, I mean, we'll talk about why people think they did this or why they said they did it. But yeah, I'm not, I don't know. Okay. Naturally, that's what I would think too. So um, his accomplice, Richard Loeb, was born on June 11th, 1905 in Chicago to Anna and Albert Loeb. Albert, his father, was a wealthy lawyer and retired vice president of Sears, Roebuck and Company. And like Leopold, Loeb was very intelligent and became University of Michigan's youngest graduate at age 17. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, And at the time of this murder, Loeb was a student at the University of Chicago Law School and was especially interested in studying history. And he was much more social than Leopold, according to several sources I read. And he liked to play tennis, read crime novels, things like that. They clearly weren't being challenged enough. I guess not. These two pieces of work. So both Loeb and Leopold, um, as I mentioned, they grew up, or maybe I mentioned it for, um, for Bobby, but they also grew up in, in the Kenwood neighborhood, oh. which, um, I, and they were like, like in the, yeah, in the same neighborhood, like blocks, not even blocks from each other. So they probably and knew each other growing up. They, I believe they did. I believe they did. And, um, so Kenwood is located on Chicago's South side and the area was settled in the 1850s by wealthy Chicagoans, basically seeking respite from the increasing congestion of the city. Chicagoans, is that what they call themselves? They're not like Chicagoites? No, no, No. good good try, but no. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I take it back. <laughs> yeah, moving on. If you're from Chicago, please let us know what you guys like to be called. And I'm, I apologize for Emily's first. <laughs> so the first of these residents to relocate to this area was John Kennicott. And he built a house in this area and named the area Kenwood after his ancestral land in Scotland. And soon after, the name Kenwood was applied to the entire area. And according to Wikipedia, 
former president Barack Obama also has a house in that neighborhood still. Yeah. And yes. And to answer your question, the Loeb family owned a mansion in Kenwood, just two blocks from the Leopold home. Of course, because they're both prodigies. So they're besties, clearly. Yes. And um, you, you skipped ahead a little bit, Emily, but yes, they did. They knew each other casually growing up. And they, as we know, they lived in the same neighborhood. Their families knew each other. So it was bound to happen. And they began to see more of each other in the mid-1920s as they both attended the University of Chicago. They particularly discovered a mutual interest in crime, of course. Uh-oh. And if we, if we were filming this, I'd be looking directly at the camera with like an eyebrow raise. Just like... Because, you know, if, if you're listening to this, you also love true crime. But, like, we don't go plan the perfect murder. Right. Now, now do we? No. It's, re- it's rhetorical. But no. <laughs> like, no. Uh, enjoying no. crime is suspicious, Katie. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so... So Leopold was particularly fascinated by Fried, um, Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of what's called Ubermenschen. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right because I'm studying German or Superman in English. And he interpreted this uh, Ubermenschen as, quote, transcendent individuals possessing extraordinary and unusual capabilities and whose superior intellects allow them to rise above the laws and rules that bound the unimportant average populace, end quote. I think it's called having a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get there too. Oh, geez. Yeah, so Leopold believed that he and Loeb were these ubermenschen, and as such were not bound by society's rules or ethics oh, and Lord. could basically do what they want without consequences and so it begins yes in a letter to Loeb Leopold wrote quote a superman is on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men he is not liable for anything he may do so these fools began asserting this delusion of perceived immunity from normal societal restrictions with acts of petty theft and vandalism. Oh my gosh. And one of their earliest crimes, super petty crimes, involved breaking into a fraternity house at the um, University of Michigan. And they stole a camera, some pen knives, and a typewriter that would later be used to type their ransom note for Bobby. Of all places to break into, why would you break into a fraternity? Like, did they have something against the fraternity? Because the frat brothers were like, they had a brotherhood? Did they not not feel welcomed by the fraternity? It it didn't go into, I, I didn't find anything specific. I'm sure that there is a reason somewhere. Of course. Lost to history. Well, there's a, a book 
that I found at the library, I was starting to read, but as we were getting closer to having to record, I didn't read the whole thing. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, Fair. But yeah, it's, it started out really good. Like the, the author dived super deep into like a ton of primary sources um, where they're able to get like firsthand accounts from these two young men. Oh my gosh. Talking about basically giving their side of the story. Nuts. Yeah. So of course they don't get caught for these petty crimes and they choose to progress to commit a series of more serious crimes, including arson, but no one seemed to notice. What? And, like, I think they were also like trying to, to see what they could get away with, but they wanted the notoriety. Oh my God. Which I think potentially would then cause them to escalate. Secret arson. We're going to light this candle on fire. Ooh. And so apparently this wasn't enough, like I mentioned, and they wanted some sort of recognition for these crimes because, as, as we'll find out, they soon decide to plan and execute what they would call the perfect crime that would garner this public attention that they want and confirm their, um, their self-perceived status as Uber mentioned. See, and that's the problem. They wouldn't have gotten caught if they had just not wanted to get caught right right and i don't know this has come up in several of course they're like the um uh not documentaries but um t like sitcoms or tv shows where you know certain killers like actually want to be caught it's that ego well they want i don't or they want the notoriety yes it's like oh i'm smarter than you I'm smarter than you and you must recognize it and bow down to me. It's, it's that, it's that big ego. They need, they need the ego stroke instead of the actual crime. It's not about the crime. It's about the ego. Maybe. Okay. So trigger warning here as I get into the actual murder of Bobby. So this so-called perfect crime would involve uh, kidnapping and murdering little Bobby Franks. And these fools spend several months planning their quote-unquote perfect crime from the method of abduction to the disposal of the body. And to cover up the true nature of their crime and motive, they typed out a ransom demand and devised like something somewhat of an intricate plan of collecting it in terms of just a a complex series of instructions <laughs> like one one set of instructions at a time by phone and oh my gosh i know and they type the final the final page of instructions involving the actual money drop in the form of a ransom note using the friggin' typewriter that they stole from the fraternity house the only thing worse would be if they had had actual bobby type it out for them no that'd be really shitty that'd be that'd i mean be... more so than what they did right. not even more so no i no never mind i take that back. that would not... just add insult to injury yes yes Ugh. why do i feel so... like we did that anyways continue okay so after searching for their suitable victim 
which was mostly around the grounds of the Harvard School for Boys in the Kenwood area, which was relatively close to where they all lived. They decide that they're going to kidnap and murder Bobby, um, who, oh, who also happened to be Loeb's second cousin and lived across the fucking street. Oh, from this I, was, I was wondering why they chose Bobby because they hated him. I don't think they hated him. I think he was just an easy, a relatively easy target. Because he's not, it's so, okay, let me. Bobby would follow them because he knows them. He'd be like, sure, I'll go out into the woods with you. Why not? We're family. Well, I know, like, I would say stranger danger, but family they knew danger. Each other. So there'd really be no reason not to go with them. Right. Sure, I'll go with you into the creepy fraternity at night where we're going to set fire to candles. Well, unfortunately, it happens very quickly. Of course it does. Well, I, that's... I know, you know I know. I mean. Tell me it's, the story, it's Katie. Not, okay. So these fools put their plan into motion on the afternoon of May 21st, 1924, using a rented car, which was obtained using a fake name, of course, Leopold and Loeb drive around that afternoon trolling for a victim. Gross. So they Ew. see Bobby walking home from a baseball game and offered him a ride. Ugh. So yeah, not like stranger danger? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. But um, freaking Loeb persuaded Bobby. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. So, okay, Loeb... Um, offers him a ride but bobby basically he initially refuses because he lives just a couple he's like he's on his way home he's a few blocks away it's like i don't need a ride like i'm almost home but they convince him somehow to get into the car um by telling him he wants to talk about a tennis racket that bobby had been using the other day when they were playing tennis at their house so bobby climbs into the front passenger seat of the car and the precise sequence of events that took place is still disputed. But according to newspapers and other articles I read, uh, the popular opinion places Leopold behind the wheel of the car while Loeb is in the back seat with a chisel. A fucking chisel. Where the hell did he get a chisel? He, he bought it. At the store. Oh my gosh. Or are they so rich that the artist that was working on the new statue to go into the atrium left it behind? Either know. way, he's got I a chisel just, of all things. So Loeb, from the back seat, allegedly strikes Bobby several times in the head with the chisel that they purchased for God. this horrific act. Oh my God. And then pulls him into the back seat and gags him. Little Bobby quickly succumbs from his wounds. And Loeb places him on the floorboard of the car in the back seat. There's got to be so much blood. That is not the perfect crime. There's going to be so much blood and evidence in that car now. Poor Bobby. <sighs> Ugh. So these, these two, I know. These two proceed to drive to their predetermined dumping site near Wolf Lake in Hammond, Indiana, which is about 25 miles or 40 kilometers south of Chicago. 
So once it was dark, they removed and discarded Bobby's clothes, concealing him in a culvert along the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks, which is like, I think, north of the lake. And in an effort to obscure Bobby's identity, they pour hydrochloric acid on his face and his genitals to disguise the fact that he was circumcised. Ugh. Wow. <clears throat> Why hydrochloric acid? Okay, I mean, there's better stuff, but... I don't know, maybe that was readily available. Oh my gosh. So by the time these monsters get back to Chicago... Word, of course, had already spread that Bobby was missing. Of course. And according to that book, and I, it's in my other, the other room, so I, I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but I will put it in the show notes. Um, okay. Because it is a good, it is a good read. Very well researched, in my opinion. Um, so according to this book, Bobby's mom started to get worried earlier in the evening when he didn't, when Bobby didn't come home, naturally. I mean, he's 14 and bobby's like, only 14 oh shoot did i not i you probably did but it didn't quite you probably did but it didn't sink in rats <sighs> sorry everybody i feel like that's a yeah so every these are kids so bobby bobby is 14 and then leopold and Loeb are like 18 19 bobby's and, only 14 yes Yes, these, like, disgusting humans did this to see, like, basically, and I'll, I have this in my notes, but basically, like, they wanted to know what it felt like and to see if they get away with it. Well, really, only the one of them is the murderer. The other one's just an accessory. Well, but they're going to flip on each other and try to blame the other one. Well, of course, because only one of them did the murder. The crazier one did the murder. So, yes. I mean, like, okay, if, four, yeah, 14-year-old me didn't make it home by dark, like, our, our parents are going to be raising the alarm. Yes. They're going to be like, where the heck are you? Yeah. No, not you, Kevin. Sorry, oh. my cat is in here now. <laughs> so Kevin. if he starts meowing, I'm sorry. Uh, okay. So that same night... Uh, Leopold called Bobby's mom, identifying himself as somebody named George Johnson, and told her that Bobby had been kidnapped and to expect instructions soon for delivering the ransom. And as I mentioned, they'd also typed that ransom note, which they sent to the family, but not before burning their bloodstained clothing, cleaning the blood from the rented vehicle, okay, and passing the remainder of the evening, evening playing cards of course and it's been speculated that leopold called the franks home because mrs franks would likely recognize Loeb's voice since he's kin and presumably like a frequent visitor at their house maybe i don't know mm -hmm. i mean bottom bottom line is that bobby was already fucking dead and yep. these cruel pieces of shit tormented this poor family with like a false promise that their kid's going to come home. Yeah. Holy crap. Like, he was already he, dead. Yeah. Yeah. And they're putting this family through all of this. Once Bobby's family received the ransom note the following morning, 
Leopold would call them a second time and dictate the first set of instructions for the ransom payment. This intricate plan, as we'll maybe call it, stalled almost immediately when a nervous family member forgot the address of the store where he was supposed to receive the next set of directions. And the plan like was abandoned entirely when word came that uh, Bobby's body had been found. Ugh. And uh, Leopold and Loeb tried to destroy the typewriter and they burned a blanket they had used to move the body. Wow. Ugh. So I say so a lot too. I need to calm it down, <laughs> get it together. Chicago police launched an intensive investigation and rewards were offered for information leading to who might have done this. While Loeb went about his daily routine doing what he does, Leopold, on the other hand, spoke freely to police and reporters and offered theories about who might have done it to anyone who would listen. Of course, because he's got to inject himself into the investigation because he's a psychopath. Yep. And he even tried to help them locate the drugstore from which (gasps) two telephone calls were made to Bobby's house. Wow. And I've I've seen this behavior before in certain killers like uh, Edmund Kemper, who actually, I think he wanted to be a police officer and would actually hang out with the local Oh yeah, and then also I think Dennis Rader is another one who was the BTK killer, Um, and but they insert themselves into these cases, and I think I I mean to me it's incredibly narcissistic. Like yes, in that they want they want to know whether the police are onto them, or that they might think they're smarter than the police and want to basically showboat. Yes. And maybe some camaraderie. Maybe. Maybe so. And again, this is simply what I've read, speculation. I'm obviously not a trained professional psychologist. Um, So if I'm totally off base, anybody who might be listening, who knows way more about this than I do, let me know. Yeah. Um, And I get all of mine from TV, so. (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, I get some of mine from TV more than I would probably realize. <laughs> oh, mine is 100% from watching too much TV. Yeah, as we do. As narcissistic and Ubermenschen, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, so German friends, if you know how to pronounce this, let me know. As these fools might have been, one of them is going to make a crucial mistake, which ultimately ends in their downfall. I'm sorry, but I love it when criminals make stupid mistakes. Yes. It's like they think, yes, they think they're smarter than everyone and yet fail to check their surroundings on the dump site. Which one's the one that murdered him again? Leopold or Loeb? Leopold, right? Allegedly, I believe it was Leopold. Let me hang on. Let me scroll back up to my notes. It was... Because Leopold is the one talking to police, right? I think whoever's talking so to Le- police is the murderer. So Leopold is talking to police. Uh-huh. Allegedly, Loeb is the one that was in the backseat with the chisel. Oh. 
But again, this is disputed by a couple of witnesses and, of course, the two fuckheads who did this pointed the fingers. And so these two were summoned for formal questioning on May 29th, five days following the murder. And they told police that on the night of the murder, they had picked up two women in Chicago using Leopold's car, then dropped them off sometime later near a golf course without learning their names. Of course, convenient. As you you do. Um, Their alibi was later exposed as a lie when Leopold's chauffeur told police that he was repairing Leopold's car while the men claimed to be using it. Oh. Yeah. And the chauffeur's wife confirmed that the car was, in fact, parked in the Leopold garage on the night of the murder. And get your story straight with all your with all your staff well yeah and the typewriter that they tried to destroy was recovered from a nearby lagoon on june 7th oh throwing it into the lagoon good idea yeah Um, so i don't know if it like washed up or if they drugged the lagoon i didn't quite get there but either way it was found me thinks thou dost protest too much yes and Loeb ended up confessing to the kidnapping and murder first. And then he basically flips on Leopold, implicating him and asserting that he, Leopold, planned everything and killed Bobby in the back seat as Loeb drove the car. And then Leopold would confess shortly after, but he he insisted that he was the driver and Loeb the murderer, which kind of strikes me as odd they, as I mentioned, they wanted this notoriety to some degree. So why not take the credit? Right. And their confessions otherwise corroborated most of the evidence in the case. Both, both their confessions were announced by the state's attorney on May 31st. And Leopold would later claim in his book, of course he writes a fucking book, that this was long after Loeb, oh sorry, the book... He wrote this book long after Loeb was dead. Um, So he couldn't dispute this. Of course. But um, so he writes in this book that Leopold pleaded in vain with Loeb to admit to killing Bobby. He quotes, he quotes Loeb as saying, quote, Mopsy feels less terrible than she might thinking you did it. And I'm not going to take that shred of comfort away from her. End quote. I, I suspect Mopsy is either um, one of their moms. I honestly, I don't know. Um, maybe Mopsy's Bobby's mom. Oh, maybe. And I, I don't have it in here where I where I got that quote directly. Like I know it's in my, um, my, my the links I'll put in the show notes. But while, while most observers believe that Loeb did indeed strike the fatal blows, some circumstantial evidence, including testimony from eyewitnesses, um, said that they saw Loeb driving and Leopold in the backseat minutes before the kidnapping, suggesting that Leopold could have been the killer. And both Leopold and Loeb admitted that they were driven by their thrill-seeking, uber-mentioned illusions and their aspiration to commit a perfect crime. And neither one claimed to have looked forward to the killing itself, 
but Leopold would admit interest in learning what it would feel like to be a murderer. Of course. And he was disappointed to note that he felt the same as ever. Fucking psychopath. Wow. Yeah, that's a serial killer right there. Ugh. So the trial begins pretty soon after that in the uh, Cook, Chicago's Cook County Criminal Court. And it, of course, became a media spectacle and was called the trial of the century. And do you want to guess who maybe they hired to defend these guys? Um, the guy... <laughs> the guy from... The musical Chicago. What is his name? Billy. Billy. <laughs> you can't say Cook County without me thinking of the musical Chicago. Oh, it's been a long terrible. time since I've seen that. Terrible. No. Um, I don't know. Who who would they who would they hire? So Loeb's family hired none other than Clarence Darrow to lead the defense team. I don't know who that is. So he was famous for, do you know the Scopes monkey trial? No. Uh, gosh. That one is, ah, God, they the made a, they, it was about, um, I think, teaching evolution in schools. Oh. And he, um, he I believe he did. I'm going to have to, here, hang on. Let me see if I can pull it up really quick. I should have. I meant to put it in my notes. I mean, yeah. So quite the separation between church and state, but you know, whatever. Yeah. So that's a uh, that's Clarence. So he's pretty well known. Pretty famous lawyer. Um, cool. Yeah. All right. And he he had done some other things. So like I said, the scopes came after after this trial. So anyway, side note. Sorry, guys. So. Clarence Darrow was paid about seventy thousand dollars in nineteen twenty-four to represent Holy these crap. two girls. And that's a freaking that's a, a lot of money. It's equivalent to about a million dollars. Wow. In 20, like twenty twenty one money. Oh, that's right. I forgot they're rich. Their families yeah, are they're rich. they're very wealthy. And uh, Darrow apparently took the case because he was a staunch opponent of capital punishment. So he's oh. trying to get these two out of not to be sentenced to death. Not the death penalty. No. Huh. And while it was generally assumed that the um, these their defense would be based on a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity darrow would conclude that a jury trial would probably end in a conviction and the death penalty so he decides to enter a plea of guilty hmm. hoping to convince the judge to impose a sentence of life in prison and due to the fact that the two plead guilty um and it was accepted by the judge they actually skipped right to the sentencing phase which lasted about 32 days i believe 32 days for a sentence of guilty well no 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 they're so they're they're guilty this is figuring out what their sentence is going what to their be. punishment is what 32 the punishment. days to determine yes. their punishment yeah 
Wow. Um, because it's probably because the state's attorney presented over, I think, 100 witnesses that documented details of the crime. And that takes, that's going to take a long time to hear everybody. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. And then um, Darrow also presented extensive psychiatric testimony in an effort to establish mitigating circumstances. Right. Including childhood neglect in the form of absent parents. Of course. And in Loeb's case, apparently sexual abuse by a governess. And I didn't really dive into that at all. Um, I wonder if that's true. I don't know. I don't know. You would think if it was true that his victim would be a female then. I don't, well, but if it's not, if the motive isn't sexual. Oh, maybe not. Maybe not. You would think that Um, the motive would be, oh, I guess not. A lot of serial killers do become serial killers because they were abused as children. Some. Hmm. And then Darrow also called a series of expert witnesses who offered a laundry list of Leopold and Loeb's abnormalities. And I found this interesting. Apparently one witness testified to their dysfunctional endocrine glands. (laughs) I don't even know. (laughs) They're physically ill, which makes them want to murder. I guess. Uh, so Darrow concludes his performance with a 12 hour long closing speech as a final plea to spare the lives of these two fools. 12 hours, 12 hours. I mean, this guy was a phenomenal, he's filibusting. Good Lord. Well, but he's not trying to prevent them. The judge from carrying out the sentence. He's just trying to get you know make this case and he was a great orator if it takes you 12 hours i think they're guilty well and i'm gonna put a link to that speech in the show notes if you want to go read it 12 hours no ma'am i need the clips notes. <laughs> 12 well yeah, I, I did i did watch the entirety of the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial. So I can spare 12 hours for. Wow. That was a long, that was a long trial. That's crazy. I, I did not get into that at all. Oh my gosh. It was, it was a lot. It was a lot. Cameras should always (laughs) be in the, the courtroom. Good Lord. Wow. Oh, Anyways, have to go, wow, yeah. 12 hours. Yes, link 12, it in the show notes. Yes, 12, 12 hours. Um, so his principal arguments were that the methods and punishments of the American justice system were inhumane and the youth and immaturity of the accused. Well, I guess that's my, that's the end of the sentence. That doesn't, it didn't sound, it sounded weird. Oh. Um, anyway, I'm going to read a few excerpts from the speech that I came across that I think are still seen today in certain crimes. Um, And so he, so Clarence opens with the following statement, your honor, it has been almost three months since the great responsibility of this case was assumed by my associates and myself. It has been three months of great anxiety, a burden, which I gladly would have been spared excepting for my feelings of affection towards some of the members of one of these unfortunate families. 
I insist, Your Honor, that had this been the case of two boys of these defendants' age, unconnected with families of great wealth, there is not a state's attorney in Illinois who could not have consented at once to a plea of guilty and a punishment of the and a punishment in the penitentiary for life, not one. No lawyer could have justified any other attitude. No prosecution could have justified it. This terrible crime was inherent in his organism and it came from some ancestor. Is any blame attached because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life upon it? It is hardly fair to hang a 19 year old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. <laughs> oh, well, he was taught philosophy at the university, so clearly him murdering and skinning a young boy alive is not his fault. It's the university's fault. We should put the university to death. Mm -hmm. And then one last excerpt. They wanted to commit a perfect crime. There had been growing there had been growing in this brain, dwarfed and twisted, not due to any wickedness of Dickie Loeb, for he is a child. It grew as he grew. It grew from those around him. It grew from the lack of the proper training until it possessed him. He believed he could beat the police. He believed he could plan the perfect crime. He had thought of it and talked of it for years, had talked of it as a child, had worked at it as a child, and this sorry act of his, utterly irrational and motiveless, a plan to commit a perfect crime, which must con contain kidnapping, and there must be ransom, or else it could not perfect, and they must get the money. He's not making them any less guilty. Like, what... Well, and I don't, purpose. I, well, and maybe I shouldn't have given excerpts because it, it takes it out of context. Um, but I mean, he, he mentioned that they were, he was a child and they were children and so, that this idea was a child's idea, but I really don't see him making them any less guilty. Well, and I, again, I think he's, he's not saying they're, they're innocent. Like he's, he knows that they're guilty. I think he's trying to play to their, um, maybe they, they didn't know any better or. Wow. I think at 19, like you should know. I think at 19, you should know better between murder and not murder. Well, but they're, they're rich, Emily. They're privileged. They, they didn't know. They didn't think they're, rules applied they, to them. They had subpar governesses then. Ugh. So, what kind of governess teaches that you can murder? I don't think the governess had nothing to do with it. Terrible, terrible. Well, it wasn't mother and father's fault because mother and oh. father were raised the same way. So it's clearly the governess. Well, so apparently the judge was persuaded. But he what? explained, hold on. He explained in his ruling that his decision was based primarily on precedent and the youth of the accused. So on September 10th, 1924, he sentenced both Leopold and Loeb to life imprisonment for the murder and an additional 99 years for the kidnapping. Unjust, unjust, unjust. 
they were guilty. They forfeited their choice. They, they yeah. forfeited. They chose to forfeit their lives. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So these two were initially held at Joliet Prison, which is in Joliet, Illinois. And it's another beautiful old prison. Hint, hint, Courtney and Patrick over at Evil Pudding. They um, they have a prison series going on. Um, though I think they may have only had one or two episodes if i'm if i'm remembering correctly and every time i come across an old historic prison i share it with them though i'm not sure if this one is haunted necessarily but i bet it is because it was built in 1858 oh yeah so anyway Loeb and leopold were kept apart as much as possible though they did manage to maintain their friendship and uh leopold was later transferred to stateville penitentiary in 31 and Loeb later went there too why keep them apart they already murdered somebody I mean you're keeping them you chose to keep them alive why keep them apart screw it Uh, let them let them let them live their lives happily in a penitentiary I don't know but get ready for some prison justice y'all uh-oh so on January 28th 1936 so they've been in prison for 12 years. Yeah. Loeb was attacked by a fellow inmate with a straight razor in the shower. Holy crap. And Loeb dies from his wounds a few days later. Yeah. And so the prisoner, um, his name was James Day. He claimed that Loeb had assaulted him. But he was unharmed while Loeb sustained more than 50 wounds, including defensive wounds on his arms and hands. Wow. And his throat had been slashed from behind. Oh, Loeb must have been talking a lot of shit. And news accounts that I found suggested that Loeb had propositioned this inmate. Mm and proposition or propositioned aggressively uh, i think in prison when you're propositioned it's probably at like knife point (laughs) that's what a propositioned aggressively (laughs) i don't think there's any other way propositioned Um, without consent oh yes so according to the way um wikipedia phrased it um, the authorities, perhaps embarrassed by alleged same-sex behavior in prison, basically ruled that Day was defending himself. And I don't think good. I don't. I don't know if he. Um, if, if he, he was propositioned much, yeah. unconsensually, then yeah, he was defending himself. Good for him. Yeah. Well, and apparently, there's no evidence that Loeb was a sexual predator. While he was in prison, but allegedly Day, the prisoner that that killed him, uh-huh. um, was later caught in at least one um, sexual act with a fellow inmate. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? But um, oh, poor Day. Yeah. So was he just victimized again and again? Well, no. I mean, I don't know if he was. I don't know. I did. I didn't. I didn't dive too far into it. Dang. So. A um a reporter 
asked a few individuals they so they reported on Loeb's death um because I mean because they were such a sensational it was such a sensational case when these two were going to prison kind of when stuff would come up they people would jump on it to report and so there were a couple of headlines that I found in the old newspapers and a reporter asked a few individuals who were involved in the case to reflect on Loeb's death and some of them are like freaking brutal but um I'm going to read a couple. So this former state's attorney, Robert Crow, said, quote, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Oh. And Lieutenant William, I think it's Crow, who arrested Leopold and Loeb, says, quote, well, Loeb was at least given a chance to fight for his life. That's an opportunity that was not granted Bobby Franks. <gasps> Damn savage yeah savage yeah bobby wasn't allowed a fight no 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 prison prison justice wow go day so leopold continued to serve his sentence after Loeb's death and became a model prisoner of course yeah when your friend gets murdered for being a shit you're gonna start acting right yeah and certain thing, a couple things he did, he reorganized the prison library, revamped the schooling system. He even taught the students and did volunteer work. Um, so yeah, he, he did a few things. He actually also wrote a book, like an autobiography. And he apparently wanted to sell it, but have the proceeds go to like some nonprofit but the parole board was like, uh, no, that's a clear violation of your parole, sir. Um, because like, and I've seen this before where like uh, killers or other criminals want to write a book like about their. Oh, and they just want to re-victimize the well, world. They, well, it's that, but they, you know, they, because they'll get royalties and, well, yeah, you know, the prison system's like, um, no, no, you, uh, you uh, forfeited that right when you killed this person or whoever yeah. it was. No, you don't get to get rich off for being a dick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Leopold would die in 1971 from a diabetes-related heart attack at the age of 66. And that is the case of the murder of Bobby Franks. Poor Bobby. Well, I mean, Bobby, his poor family, having to go through all that bullshit. And then just two... to find out that he was already dead the whole time, like, there was no... I mean, the, he, he was kidnapped, but he was murdered immediately. It's, yeah, these pieces of trash. I mean, they, and they admit, they admitted to doing it because they wanted they wanted a thrill they wanted to know what it felt like wow and to commit this quote-unquote perfect crime that would never be solved Ugh. wow they suck somebody did not raise them correctly good lord well okay so these young men as far as i'm concerned thought they were above the law and could probably have gotten away with it. But of course, as we know, they weren't as smart as they thought because fucking Leopold dropped his glasses. 
Right. Um, but they also came and I, I don't know, if, like, I don't want to, I don't want to generalize, but they, they thought they were intellectually superior and they also came from really wealthy families. And well, they were pretty, they were really book smart. They were, to be fair, they were really book smart, but like, yeah, nobody, I guess nobody told them no enough as <clears throat> children. Well, and that's the, that's what I kind of wanted to, to touch on. So as I was finishing up researching this, it actually made me think of the case, the re- relatively recent, like in the last, I think five, six years, um, a young man named Ethan Couch. Are you familiar with him? It sounds, it sounds like something I've heard of, but uh, fam- re-familiarize me, remind me. So, so he was, I think he was 16 at the time. He was drunk driving and he ended up killing several people in a vehicle collision. Oh, that sucks. And this was in Burleson, Texas, which is just south of Fort Worth. But he hit another vehicle that was that was pulled off to the side of the road. And I think they had a flat tire or some other uh, mechanical like issue that they were they pulled off to the side to fig- like fix it or figure it out. Mm-hmm. And he collides with this vehicle and he kills four and injures nine. Oh my god! And the major upset with that case is that he was sentenced, again, he's 16, he killed four people, he was drunk. He was sentenced to 10 years of probation because a psychologist claimed that Couch, the young man, was a victim of what's called affluenza, which basically means he's a product of wealthy, privileged parents who never set limits on him. People were pissed, and they still are. So his punishment was barely a slap on the wrist, like not even, not even a slap on the wrist, like a, like a strongly worded finger waving in front of his face. Don't you do that? That was very, very wrong, sir. Ten years of probation. Ten years of probation, and given that he was only sixteen. He was tied or he um, was tried in juvenile court and he did plead responsible to the charges, but he argued the sentencing, I think. Well, yeah, because that's 10 years of probation, Katie. Oh, my <laughs> life is so My life is hard. ruined. My life is so hard. Oh, so, yeah, that it, it reminded me a little bit of that. I mean, obviously, two completely different crimes. But the like the the sentencing was kind like like well maybe you know what I'm trying to say yeah um, wow you there's a book called the affluenza you should read it it's quite a am I gonna like book. throw it across the room <laughs> no you're gonna want to throw oh, okay. all your stuff away and oh, never no. buy anything again and become a hermit oh great yeah it's a really good book well I will pick that up. Yeah. Um, from the are, library. You should, you should rent it from the library. That'll make you feel less. Okay. Less, less guilty. Less. Okay. Less yeah. consumery. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very, it makes you feel very consumery. Wow. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a few other examples of younger kids committing murder, like against other children. Of course. 
And in many cases, at least in the research that I briefly found and like gleaned, one is usually a dominant personality and one is submissive. Yeah. And here are a few examples and we're, we'll probably end up covering some of these in future episodes. But the first one is Mary Bell and Norma Joyce Bell, no relation. These two were much younger as in like 11 and 13 respectively. Oh my gosh. And little Mary Bell was very much the dominant personality from what I gleaned, where Norma sort of went along, um, at least with one murder. And I don't think she was actively involved in the actual act of murder, but little Mary Bell. um, So Norma was acquitted of all the charges in, in one of these cases. And then Mary was incarcerated, but she was released in 1980 at the age of 23. Well, yeah, because um, she was so young when she murdered. She, was so she young. clearly didn't know what she was doing. Oh, my God, Emily. She, we, will, we will cover her because, oh, Kale. Like she, she, cle- she clearly was just an innocent little child. She didn't know what she was doing murdering all those people. And we then. Can't, we, can't, <laughs> we can't punish her too harshly. Oh, my gosh. Good As Lord. Jason would say, just take him outside and shoot him. Well, I mean, what do you do with, sorry, dear listeners, I am, you can clearly tell my opinion on uh, capital punishment. Um, What do you do with rabid dogs? A human that murders other humans and rapes other humans is, is the equivalent of a rabid dog. What do you do with a rabid dog? There's only one thing you can do. Wow, I actually didn't know where you stood on capital punishment. That is very much where I stand. Wow. A a human that murders other humans is the equivalent of a rabid dog. Unless, of course, it's in self-defense. It's different. Well, then there's there's that. Then there's that. I mean, if they're doing it for fun and sport and for kicks, that's that's rabies. If they're doing it in self-defense, that's completely different completely like that's not even the same discussion wow maybe we'll have to talk about more on capital punishment and how you really feel (laughs) (laughs) i don't really even know where i stand half the time um there's so many just different circumstances i mean it is the the only bad part about capital punishment is it is irreversible and what if you got the wrong guy that's, well, yes. That's 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 where it becomes gray. Mm-hmm. But there, I mean, yeah, there is. Uh, oh gosh, I feel terrible. One of the one of the podcasts I listened to recently did. They recently covered. Uh, they did a uh, episode on on capital punishment, and oh, I feel horrible. Like I love. Oh my god, there's there. There, there are so many different true crime podcasts I've come across just, and I think I've said this before, um, having, after starting this podcast, I joined, I was added to a, an Instagram group of, of, of some amazing, like everybody in that group is amazing, of different podcasters. And so I'm, I'm like trying to catch up on all of these different cases and podcasts. And now I feel horrible and I will, I will find it and put it in the show notes. Yes. Give them a shout out um, on either the next episode or in between. One of the one of the um, upcoming episodes. 
Yes. Definitely. Um, or in, for sure in between, like I will give them a shout out um, on the socials, but, but yeah, they did this really great episode on, um, I think it's, Oh, I think it was sips of crime. Sips of crime. Sips of crime. All yes. of these podcasters have the best names. Oh my gosh. I am Katie. almost, I am almost positive. It was sips of crime. These are so and, Oh, I feel horrible. Um, okay. Anyway, I will, I will find it, but, but yeah, it was a great, it was a great episode and just talking about, you know, the whole process and, you know, why it takes so long and just all these things, but. Well, it takes so long because you got to make sure that they're the right one. Well, that, that was a big part of like what she was talking about um, because there had been instances where the wrong person was executed. And they, and they, they, they found the evidence later on, like, oh, yeah. oops, like oops. you can't reverse, you, like you said, it's irreversible. Yeah. It's, I mean, granted it is, it is also irreversible if you throw the wrong person in prison for life, saying that they're a murderer and a horrible human being, even if you put them in prison for life and then you realize, oh, whoops, sorry, it's been 30 years, but you were the wrong guy. You're free to go. Like, his life's been ruined. Or hers. Sorry. His or hers. Sorry, you've spent 30 years in the pen. Your your life is ruined, but you're free to go. Yeah. No one's ever going to hire you again because you're a convicted felon. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No one's ever going to love you because your family has all given up hope on you and has hated you for 30 years for deceiving them as a murderer. But, you know. Whoops. Yeah. Whoops. Whoops. Whoops is not an excuse. No. Um, So, yeah. So that is, um, before we we go off on too much of a a tangent there and to wrap (laughs) this up because we're at like 75 minutes. Whoops. Um, okay, so I have both a mocktail recipe and a short, creepy ghost story to Woo! help mellow us out from that bonkers case. And Emily, you've heard this story. This one comes, it was shared with us by none other than Harold. Oh, yes, I love this ghost story. Okay, I shared this on the TikTok and Instagram, but for some reason, I, I just love it. Um, like, it's it's not, like, super creepy, but it's creepy enough where you're just, like, and maybe because we we just we like we know Harold and we we can experience his crazy reactions to things. Well, okay. Um, so so one thing that y'all need to know to about our stepfather to to truly fully have this be as creepy as possible. Um, this is a steadfast man. Nothing bothers him. Nothing. <laughs> literally, nothing bothers him. He's he's a very constant steadfast um what does he say life life goes on yes like life life goes uh, on yeah like he's very steadfast very calm very chill if if he were an animal he would be a capybara like (laughs) very very cool calm collected yes that is very true so Um, when he says not no but (laughs) hell no <laughs> something he, he means it yes so and i think we've mentioned this before so harold recently retired from a very long career training and evaluating dogs that detect explosives 
primarily for, I uh, think, um, local, local police departments, sheriff's offices, TSA, pretty much any, any sort of transportation, uh, mode of transportation. So um, airplanes, trains, vehicles, boats, that sort of thing. So the other day I asked him if he had ever experienced any creepiness at the really cool places he's traveled. And this is what he proceeds to tell us. And Emily was there, so she can she can jump in too. But oh yes, I'm going to. Yes. So the last time he was in Los Angeles, which was a few years ago, I think. So like not super super recent, but he was at the sheriff's department training facility, and they were training in an old prison cell block. So it was Harold, one of his colleagues, the handler and the dog, and a few sheriff's deputies. And there they have, um, the way they, they train is that they set up various pieces of luggage and maybe one or two, I think, will have the training aid in there. So basically the goal is for the handler to let the dog move through the luggage and he needs to, he or she needs to be reading the dog to, to see, okay, when are they, they going to signal at whatever bag it is. And, um, so the, this dog, Harold's worked with this dog before. He knows the dog is like going to zip through that really quickly. This isn't going to take long. And um, so the sheriff's, the, the sheriff's deputies work at this prison. Like they are used to this place. They know this place. Yes. They're, yeah. Yeah. And um, the cell block has um, cells naturally on one side. And then on the opposite side is like a brick or CMU type wall. Um, solid so wall. You know, no solid doors, wall. no nothing. Just completely solid wall. Yeah. So this, the handler gets ready to go. And he's, he, he I think it was a male. Um, he's getting the dog ready. And the dog all of a sudden freezes. His hackles go up this dog will not move and the dog is like staring away from them just out somewhere the dog and is so, staring down down the hallway the dog is staring down the hallway and is like uh-uh yeah not doing and, it yeah so harold you know looks at the dog then looks at the handler then back to the colleague and they're all like looking quizzically looking at each other and then as if out of a freaking movie everybody and like picture this everybody in unison slowly looks toward where the dog is looking at the but, end of the cell block yeah they just like yeah everybody and looks all of them all of them see the same thing a woman just standing there looking back at them at the end of the freaking hallway at the end of the hallway and so after what seems like probably forever, one of the deputies is like, I'll go, I'll go look and see who this is. And I guess, no. like, oh. well, and I think Harold the deputy with like, a big freaking gun too. He's like, Oh, yes, he, I'll go. He, no. He was, holding, <laughs> he was, he was wielding some sort of long rifle. Apparently he was showing them or everybody. And so this dude with the long rifle is like, I'll go check it out. And like, okay. The other thing, nobody oh. is supposed to be in this area except them. So, okay, dude, more power to you. And so as this deputy is like moving to walk towards this woman, the ghost woman or aberration, whatever she is, she turns and walks through 
the wall. The solid wall. The solid wall. <laughs> and so our steadfast stepdad very quickly is like, nope. Fuck no. He says, fuck he no. Hell he no. out of there. <laughs> He's like, no, we're not He's doing like, this. We're going outside. We're, we're done now. Outside. We're done. And yeah, so you and I, I, w- I should have recorded him telling the story, but um, oh, so it's good. just, it is so hilarious and think, okay, so Harold resembles pretty, pretty well, in my opinion, resembles um, Samuel L. Jackson. He's and, similar demeanor, very yeah, sim- similar, similar, demeanor. similar demeanor, um, kind of similar in the face. Um, so just picture Maybe, I don't know. Maybe not really, Emily. Eh, I mean, uh, maybe at a, for like a quick glance. Maybe. Maybe if you're drunk and you just I don't barely know. look at him, I don't know. Mom, mom always thought. But okay. anyway, so he um, just similar demeanor, and so just he doesn't he doesn't you know curse as much as as he does, but um, but just picture you know God, that's happening, did, and though. Harold is just like uh uh-uh. uh. Like I'm no, no, Hell no, no. Um, so, so that is our that's my little ghost story. <laughs> um, I hope everyone enjoys that. And he wait, but you missed a part. What? So apparently, after all of that, um, he mentioned that as they were in the training facility before and after this ghost story. Um, they would just hear the doors to the empty cells slamming open and shut throughout the time that they were there. And he was like, what is that? And the guards are like, oh, it's normal. It's the cells opening and closing. It's fine. No, that is is not normal. It's not fine, sir. (laughs) No. We need the we need the priests. We need some exorcism. We need the salt. We need the friars. We need the nuns. We need the holy water. Well, we I'm sorry. When the dogs are scared to go inside, no, that's a sign. I'm sorry. Uh, animals, nope. animals know all. Nope. <laughs> Dog nope. says no. I say no. Nope. Yep. Nope. Oh my god. Um. Yes. So that is the that is our ghost story, and let me jump to this mocktail really quick, and then we will wrap it up, or we'll be done. So um, this week's mocktail is going to be a take on a drink that was actually created by fellow podcasters Steph and Drew over at Spirited Spirits. Ooh, and it's called the Axe Murderer. And shout <laughs> out to them; they are they are another podcast that I recently found, and I I just I love them. And they're another husband and wife team. And they kind of remind me of Courtney and Patrick from Evil Pudding. Um, Like their banter is somewhat similar. So if you enjoy Evil Pudding, I think you will really enjoy Spirited Spirits. And their drink, The Axe Murderer, first debuted in their episode where they covered the Velisca Axe Murders, which is one we'll probably cover too. Mm -hmm. And... So the alcohol used in their recipe, and I just want to give you guys a comparison because in some of these mocktails, I'll just swap out um, whatever the alcoholic or the alcohol portion is with a, like a non the, um, well, the alcohol-free spirit that folks have been making. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So I'm going to experiment a little with this one. Um, 
and see what I can make work. So um, they use bourbon and Chambord. And um, Chambord is a raspberry liqueur, if you're unfamiliar. Thank you. And I plan, I plan to simply swap out um, those two for um, either with my reliable ritual whiskey alternative, or um, there's also one, I think it's called Kentucky 45. And it's a, it's a whiskey alternative that um, I found in uh, Total Wine and More a couple of times. And um, for the Chambord, uh, which again is a, a raspberry liqueur, I'll probably just use raspberry syrup. And um, so this one, unfortunately, will have probably a little more sugar than I should probably be drinking. But again, I'll play around with it and see. Um, the other ingredients include lemon juice, simple syrup, and pomegranate juice. Hmm. And in their recipe, they um, basically just add all of their ingredients into a shaker, give it a shake, and strain into a fancy glass. Um, I think they use rock glasses. So you can, again, whatever vessel you choose. And um, I'll post um, probably a reel um, on Instagram uh, showing you how I make um, my version. And I hopefully, I think it'll turn out good. And um, I will also find the Spirited Spirits um, post where they, they post their version of this drink. Um, so you can see, you know, just again, comparison. And um, theirs, theirs sounds really delicious. And um, I mean, if I, if I drank alcohol, uh, I would totally give it a shot. So I hope I do it justice. And also definitely go check them out. Um, I will post all of their information in the show notes as normal. And I think that is it, Emily. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> said that like I'm in trouble. No. No, no I am uh, finished with my my narrative. So anything you want to add before we sign off? No, any, any thoughts? Um, spirited spirit sounds like a whole bunch of fun. I can't wait to listen to some of their podcasts. And let's try the axe murderer. That sounds like a bunch of fun, except for yes. the whiskey. But you know, I'm not a whiskey fan. Yeah, real or. Alcoholic or non-alcoholic, not not a whiskey person, and that's okay. And yeah, I mean, again, we I can I can play around with it and come up with with a few options, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. So I think that is all, and we will catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye.